the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Tuesday afternoon. And yes, this is the day for the impeachment trial of citizen Trump. Today on the program, in addition to following the uh, the trial, we're going to share a classic interview with Phil Cook, who, along with his co-author, Jonathan Bach, are the authors of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Their Credibility and How to Get It back. The book is published by Worthy. We'll be sharing that conversation later this hour. Well, the proverbial impeachment perp walk took place earlier today in which the White House, I should say the House impeachment managers, uh, made their way to what is now a trial underway for citizen Trump or former President Trump, depending on your perspective. We'll talk a bit about that uh, trial throughout the the day today. We'll also let you know the latest on COVID-19 and some of the other political machinations that are taking place all around the uh, all around the country. But of course, most eyes are focused on the impeachment trial of President Trump, which began at 1 p.m. this afternoon when the House um, impeachment managers began to make their case. It came right out the chute with a very emotionally charged, vivid video of what took place on January the 6th, which really doesn't go to the heart of the question that they're addressing right now, but it does grip the imagination and the attention of the American people in the early part of a trial to determine whether or not a former president can be impeached and whether or not that will be the case for Donald Trump. At uh, issue is whether or not President Trump can run for office again. He has hinted at the fact that in 2024 he may in fact seek re-election. Whether or not that's the case remains to be seen. There's a lot of time between now and then whether or not he would have the um, uh, the same street cred, if you will, to succeed is a whole other uh, story and a lot can happen between Uh, 2021 and 2024. All of that said, former President Donald Trump has been out of office for nearly three weeks. He's still expected to command the full attention of the legislative branch and the country uh, as the Senate begins his second impeachment trial, barely one year after his first. Well, the former president was impeached on January 13th, just one week after a pro-Trump mob overtook the capitalist Congress and former Vice President Mike Pence was um, were certifying the results of the president's, uh, the current president's win in the 2020 election. Now, Democrats in uh, in Congress, even some Republicans, were outraged that the former president had gathered a rally in Washington at a remote location that day, where he repeated his claim that he won the presidential election, said he did not do enough to stop the attack once his supporters began to breach the Capitol about one hour after his rally's conclusion. Now, he was cut off from social media, so that may be at least a partial explanation. But nonetheless, Trump defenders say he's not responsible for the actions of criminals that menaced lawmakers, attacked police, and note that later in the day, he told his supporters in a Twitter video to go home. Was the trial started, Trump's lawyers are expected to argue, in fact, as we're recording the program here at this moment, they're arguing that the Senate can no longer constitutionally convict former President Trump, now that he's out of office. And the House impeachment managers are expected to dispute that, which they did earlier in an affair that represents the finale of Trump's tumultuous first term, even as there have been rumors persisting 
but he may run for a second term in 2024. So here's what's happening today. Um, The president, the former president, is accused of incitement of insurrection. It's a fundamental charge behind the impeachment article. But that assertion is backed up by the impeachment managers with a litany of other charges about what actions from the former president incited the insurrection and why. That's the case they intend to make, but that's not the case they make today. Today, the case really is whether or not an impeachment can move forward. They made their case earlier in the morning. It was um, both emotionally charged and legally riveting. However, that's one side of the argument. The other side now being made by the Trump team. The charges include Trump lied about the results of the presidential election, that he tried to subvert the accurate and fair result of the election, and that he sent the mob of his supporters to the Capitol. He also willfully made statements, and I'm quoting, that in context encouraged and foreseeably resulted in lawless action at the Capitol, such as if you don't fight like Well, heck, you're not going to have a country anymore, end quote. The impeachment article says of the event on the 6th of January, Save America rally that the former president organized. Thus incited by President Trump, members of the crowd he had addressed unlawfully breached and vandalized the Capitol, injured and killed law enforcement personnel, menaced members of Congress, the vice president and congressional personnel, and engaged in other violent, deadly, destructive and seditious acts. It continues. The article says the mob aimed to interfere with the joint session, solemn uh, constitutional duty to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election. So how does this all work? Well, the trial gaveled in at 1 p.m. today with Vermont Democrat Senator Pat Leahy, the chamber's president pro tempore, presiding in place of Chief Justice John Roberts. There was some discussion as to whether or not that was appropriate under the circumstances, and the House managers, uh, impeachment managers, argued that case rather well. well. The Chief Justice is constitutionally required to oversee impeachments of presidents, but Roberts chose not to in this case, as Trump is no longer commander in chief. He's no longer president. Well, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris also could have potentially presided over this trial, although senators have historically presided over impeachment proceedings when the person being tried is not the sitting president. That could be a federal judge, for example. Well, the person overseeing the trial isn't expected to substantially affect the outcome. It's sort of a figurehead, if you will. Well, Tuesday also um, is um, characterized by four hours of debate total, divided between the House impeachment managers. They've had their two hours. And Trump's counsel, who, as I speak, are now uh, taking up their two hours about whether the impeachment trial is constitutional. And that essentially is the issue today, whether or not there's going to be an impeachment trial and if it's constitutional, given the fact that Donald Trump no longer holds office. Now, the Senate will then vote by a simple majority on if the trial is constitutional, which was affirmed 55 to 45 in a similar vote last month. Now, if the majority of the Senate says the trial is unconstitutional, which is not expected to be the case, then the impeachment trial would be dismissed immediately. So this could all end today, but it's more likely that it will last for about a week. Now, the sides will then have until 9 a.m. tomorrow to file any motions and 11 a.m. on Wednesday to file responses to those motions before the argument on the merits of the impeachment began at noon on Wednesday. Now, the House uh, is going to present its case first, and this is the legal merits, if you will, more political, but the legal merits of the case. And it's going to be allowed up to 16 total hours of argument over the course of two days. Then Trump's lawyers, his defense, they'll present their case also up to 16 hours over two days. Well, as the trial, assuming it moves forward, is currently set up, it's going to uh, pause at 5 p.m. on Friday, 
until 2 p.m. on Sunday to observe um, the Jewish Sabbath at the request of uh, Trump lawyer David Schoen. But Schoen withdrew from the request Monday evening, saying that I will not participate during the Shabbat, but the role I would have played will be fully covered to the satisfaction of the defense team. He said that he didn't uh, want to delay the proceedings because he recognized its importance to bring to a conclusion for all involved and for the country, end quote. Well, now, this would mean the Senate could hold a full session on Saturday. It would instead take a Sunday off, rather. The adjustment isn't official yet, but we're being told that Schoen's letter will likely lead the Senate to change its schedule. And again, this is all predicated on whether or not the impeachment will move forward. We've already seen 45 Senate Republicans say we think it's unconstitutional. That may be insufficient. There may be a trial. There may not. But we're going to continue to follow it uh, over these next several days. Again, the uh, impeachment trial of citizen Trump taking place today and likely to continue over the next few days. We'll follow uh, the story as it develops. And I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity, to listen to the arguments that are being made. Now, our tendency is we're all, for the most part, partisans of one sort or the other, despite our efforts, our best efforts not to be. This is, as I mentioned yesterday, it's a political trial. So politics will weigh very heavily in um, the proceedings and the outcome. But whether or not the trial is constitutional is a, a great exercise in understanding uh, our, our constitution and how our country was designed to function and um, to try to separate out the emotional side, which will be featured in the days ahead, the emotional side of what actually happened. And that's, uh, again, one of our challenges. But we'll follow the story and hope you'll follow it with us. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're going to take a, um, a break here in just a moment, but uh, we also want to remind you that we'll hear from Phil Cook later this hour, co-author along with Jonathan Bach, The Way Back how Christians blew our credibility, and how we get it back. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in this hour, we'll hear The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility, and How We Get It Back. The book is published by Worthy. Coming up later this hour, well, of course, we're focusing our attention on what's happening in Washington today as the uh, opening arguments from the White House impeachment managers were made. And now the uh, defense, I say now because as we are recording this program today, that's what's happening now. By the time you hear this program, those arguments will have been made. But in any event, that's been the focus of the nation as the, uh, the second impeachment trial of citizen Trump continues. Meanwhile, as the former president um, trial approaches, there's a growing body of evidence in criminal complaints and affidavits that the January 6th Capitol breach had been pre-planned, undercutting the allegation leveled against Trump that he's uh, guilty of incitement to insurrection. Now, pre-planned by whom? I don't know. Anyway, a number of FBI affidavits that filed in support of various charges, including conspiracy against accused participants in that breach, show evidence of pre-planning reinforcing one of those arguments, uh, namely that participants couldn't have been incited by the president to break into the building if they had earlier planned to do so. Now, I'm not sure how much credibility this argument has, but I'm sharing it with you because this is according to a number of FBI affidavits. Well, Senator Lindsey Graham said recently that parts of the Capitol incident had been pre-planned and coordinated well before the speech on the 6th. Um, uh, 
he and while Trump said in his speech that we fight like well heck and if you don't fight like that then uh, you're going to have a uh, not going to have a country anymore the former president appeared to be making a general reference to political activism as he called on supporters to peacefully and patriotically in quotes make their voices heard during that joint session of Congress now um, Senator Lindsey Graham in an interview uh, last week said there's mounting evidence that people who came to the Capitol pre-planned the attack before the president ever spoke. Now, again, I'm not taking sides in this, but it is rather interesting that there are a number of FBI affidavits, whether or not this will be a part of the argument made uh, in defense of the president is uh, not yet clear, but of course, we're all going to follow that. Uh, Graham went on to say, if you um, open up that can of worms, well, uh, we'll want the FBI to come in and tell us about how people pre-planned this attack, what happened with the security footprint of the Capitol. You open up Pandora's box if you uh, call one witness um, in reference to calls for witnesses to testify at Trump's impeachment trial. Well, the suggested uh, implication of evidence of pre-planning at the uh, breach of the Capitol couldn't have been incited by the president as an argument made by Donald Trump uh, several weeks ago in his own defense. Well, if these federal law enforcement agencies had prior knowledge that this was a planned attack on the president of the United States, or rather attack then the president of the United States, didn't incite anything. That's a quote from uh, Donald Trump Jr. in a tweet. Well, a review of some of the affidavits in Capitol insurrection cases shows evidence um, of that fact. An affidavit uh, filed in the court against Thomas Caldwell, for example, who's believed to have uh, been a leader in the Oath Keepers group and who faces charges of conspiracy and conspiracy to impede or injure an officer, alleges that he and other plan others rather planned parts of the insurrection in advance. As described more fully herein, Caldwell planned with Donovan Crowell, Jessica Watkins and others known and unknown to forcefully storm the U.S. Capitol. I'm going to leave it at that. I just find it an interesting element that may or may not be a part of the trial, should said trial move forward after the votes taken uh, this evening in Washington. So pre-planning, the question is by whom and could it have been coordinated by the president at some uh, future date and still uh, the House managers and others find him responsible? Not at all clear, but just one other element to consider in this big mashup of events leading to today's trial. Meanwhile, Republicans who backed the push to impeach former President Donald Trump are now facing backlash from their constituents. Uh, they, uh, uh, those who backed the push to impeach uh, Donald Trump are now uh, facing their constituents and at home. Freshman Representative Peter Major of uh, Michigan, as well as more established members of the party like Senator Ben Sass, Representative Liz Cheney and others, are defending themselves as voters voice their displeasure. Major, who arrived in Washington just a few weeks ago, contended with unhappy constituents during a virtual town hall on Wednesday, which he'll find is going to be a regular occurrence when you hold office. And Nancy uh, Erdly accused Major, the, the only first-time legislator, to back impeachment of betraying the district. While Republican groups in three Nebraska, uh, Nebraska counties, they voted to censure uh, Ben Sass for attacking the president's unsuccessful efforts to overturn the election results and for claiming that Trump helped incite the events uh, at the U.S. Capitol. That's according to the Omaha World Herald report. Well, the issue continued to divide the party and threatens to loom large in primary races that are Still years away. So the fallout, um, again, for the Republican Party will be rather significant for some time to come and has become and will continue to be, from my perspective, a divisive issue. 
Meanwhile, in other news, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was confronted by reporters on Monday about reported pending guidance that would spare some illegal immigrants convicted of less serious offenses, uh, offenses rather, from deportation as the Biden administration is laying out the framework for its immigration strategy. Well, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement is expected to issue new guidance that stipulates that undocumented immigrants who've been convicted of driving under the influence or solicitation, simple assault and drug-based crimes may no longer face deportation, as reported by the Washington Post. Well, Saki noted that prioritization of who is subject to deportation is ultimately up to the Department of Homeland Security, which is going to determine who presents the greatest national security threat. Well, the guidance is reportedly an effort to focus more resources on national security issues, suspects and sex crimes and gang members, among other high-risk individuals. It's not uh, final. In other developments, President Biden is... uh, issuing rules to limit ICE arrests and deportations. And a Maryland sheriff says Americans should be outraged over the president's immigration actions dismantling ICE. A Texas sheriff claims that Biden is defunding ICE by memo, saying we have a full nullification of the law going on here. Tucker Carlson says under Biden, you need a negative COVID test to enter the U.S. unless you're an illegal alien. And Texas AG Paxson, Attorney General Paxson, says Biden is ignoring federal law with sweeping executive orders. Carpet bombing is what some are referring to it as. Well, the U.S. attorney handling Hunter Biden's probe has been asked to stay on, according to officials. The Biden administration will ask the U.S. attorney appointed by President Trump to resign from their posts. But the prosecutor overseeing the tax probe tied to Hunter Biden, the president's son, will remain in place, according to a senior Justice Department official. Hamstrung, not altogether clear. Well, the fate of U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who runs the office in Delaware, has been the source of some speculation. It's standard procedure for new presidents to ask for the resignation of all U.S. attorneys once they enter office. So that's pretty typical. But Fox News peppered the Biden uh, Biden transition team with questions about Weiss' future, and his team did take an official stance. Well, Biden has promised to restore the Justice Department's independence from the White House. Well, the senior official also said that John Durham, the U.S. District Attorney in Connecticut, who was named special counsel to investigate the origins of the FBI probe into the 2016 election, will resign from his position, but he will stay on as special counsel. Well, the transition is expected to begin today and could take weeks to complete. Well, the Department of Justice has been investigating the finances of Hunter Biden, including scrutinizing some of his Chinese business dealings and some other transactions. Well, the tax investigation was launched in 2018, the year before the elder Biden announced his candidacy for president. Hunter Biden confirmed the existence of the investigation in December after a round of subpoenas was issued in that case. President Trump and his allies, they had accused Hunter Biden of profiting off his political connections. They've also raised questions about this uh, work with Ukraine at the time of his father uh, serving as vice president under the Obama administration and while he was leading the Obama administration's dealings with the Eastern European nation. Well, accusing left-wing capital activist John Sullivan is facing new charges. He's among the group that stormed the Capitol 
but wasn't a Trump supporter. John Earl Sullivan, the left-wing activist charged in connection with the January 6th Capitol riot in Washington, is facing three additional charges, according to reports. He was charged last month with civil disorder, being in a restricted area and disorderly conduct, according to a criminal complaint by the Justice Department. In addition to the previous charges, court documents show a grand jury indictment on Monday with obstruction of an official proceeding, disorderly conduct, and demonstrating in a Capitol building. The new charges come as a federal judge ruled on Monday that he will not be detained pending his trial. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Phil Cook, co-author of The Way Back, how Christians blew their credibility and how we get it back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest and his co-author point out that 2,000 years ago, in a remarkably short period of time, Christianity became the world's most influential religion, a force in culture, politics, literature, science, philanthropy, and the arts. Its followers astonished the world. 2,000 years later, Christianity is declining on all fronts, no longer credible in most cultural debates or personal decisions. The Way has lost its way. Well, in their new book, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back, published by Worthy, media experts Phil Cook and Jonathan Bach, they take a hard look at an oft-bemoaned topic, the decline of Christianity. As committed Christians with backgrounds in marketing and filmmaking, they tackle the crisis with an enlightening and provocative perspective. Christians don't have have PR problem, they say. They have a sales force problem. Christians have simply lost belief in their own product and are in full retreat because of self-inflicted wounds. By not being remotely committed as a community to the gospel we preach, Christians have damaged our own brand in the eyes of the public. The Way Back inspires and activates modern believers to relearn from their ancient brothers and sisters and astonish the world once more. Well, according to former CNN journalist Paula Zahn, filmmaker and media consultant Phil Cook is rare. He's a working producer in Hollywood with a PhD in theology. He's the author of One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do and Unique telling your story in an age of brands and social media. He's appeared on NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, CNN, Fox News. You get the idea. And his work has been uh, pro-led in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and so on. He's lectured at universities like Yale, University of California, at Berkeley, UCLA, in addition to writing his blog at philcook.com. And by the way, that's Cook with an E. Uh, He also blogs for Huffington Post and has been a contributor to Fast Company, Forbes.com, Wired.com and FoxNews.com. He's a member of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, as well as the Producers Guild of America. He joins us today to talk about the book he co-authored, and that book is titled The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. That's quite an introduction, Georgina. I really appreciate that. I'm exhausted just going through it. You actually (laughs) did it all. (laughs) Well, I'm kind of busy, so that works out really well for me. <laughs> um, you uh, and your co-author, um, whose name I, for- I failed to mention, Jonathan Bach, uh, you're entertainment, marketing, and media experts. Uh, I guess the obvious question is, what compelled you to write a book about the decline of Christian influence, and is your perspective one of biblical history or marketing and, uh, uh, and uh, media, or both? Well, it's a great question. It's a great question, and we actually started out with media and marketing because that's our world. You know, for us, the answer to every problem is a marketing question. You know, your, your house is too small. No problem. Call it cozy. You know, there's a marketing <laughs> solution for everything. So we started with the idea that, 
maybe this huge disconnect between the Christian community and the secular world out there is a marketing problem. We're not telling our story very well. And while that's part of the problem, the more we studied, the more we researched, we just discovered we're not, we're not really sharing the gospel. We're not selling this product well. It's a sales force problem, not really a marketing problem. Well, that's an interesting way uh, to put it. Now, if we've read the scriptures from start to finish, particularly the New Testament, we, we know that, and Jesus promised that we would face opposition and challenge and difficulty. We know that that increases over time. Is it just a matter of uh, perhaps the time we're living in has made the gospel seem less attractive, or, or should we really uh, assume some responsibility for um, how, uh, how poorly the gospel is playing, if you will, uh, in, uh, in the 21st century? Well, it does seem like we're, we're, you know, in the primetime news on the evening talk shows, it seems like we're being ridiculed more than ever. We've, we've, I think we've actually gone through an era where Christians were ignored. Now we've gotten to one where we're openly ridiculed. And, uh, but when you really look at it closely, it's very much like Jesus' time. You know, during Jesus' time, the, the criticism, the hatred that he got wasn't from the people. It was from the leaders. It was the religious leaders or the political leaders of his day. But the people, I mean, I think there's like 11 references in the book of Mark alone about the size of the crowds that came out to hear Jesus. And I think even today, just normal, everyday people are hungry for the gospel. They're, they're at least curious about it, whereas most of the criticism and the ridicule we get is the media, it's politicians, it's people with loud voices, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the, it's the most people in the room. Well, you're absolutely right. That certainly is one of the problems facing the Christian community. From your vantage point, what do you see as the most urgent problems that are that are facing modern Christianity? And I suppose we would have to put ourselves on that list somewhere. Yeah, you know, when we wrote this book, we started looking at the disconnect between the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know the list. And we started thinking, what do non-Christians think when they think of Christians? Well, ideally, they should think of those kind of words, because that's the, that's the things that our life should reflect. But if you start talking to non-Christians, you get a lot of other words like hypocrites, phony, power-hungry. Uh, you get these judgmental kind of words. And so we started thinking, what's caused that disconnect? And we started looking back at the last 30 or 40 years, and I think your listeners would have to agree that there's not really one area in, in one social issue where we've moved the dial in a positive way in the last 30 or 40 years. It just hasn't happened. And so we started you know, thinking, what, what's the cause? And it, it made us go back and look at how we live our lives. So in a nutshell, we got the biggest researchers in the country, Pew, Gallup, uh, Barna, Lifeway, and we started asking them how Christians live their lives. And what we found was uh, honestly shocking. I mean, let me give you an example. We discovered that when it comes to Bible reading, we discovered that 40% of church-going Christians read the Bible rarely or never. Mm. Rarely or never. Then when it comes to church attendance, the bar is now so low that if you show up just 19 times a year, you're now considered a regular. Just 19 times a year. That's like three out of eight Sundays. You're now considered a regular. Uh, when it comes to prayer, we discovered that um, 63% of Christians believe prayer is essential. We thought that was positive until we realized the flip side means that 37% of church-going Christians don't believe prayer is essential. And of course, giving is even worse. It's pretty brutal. We found less than 10% of church-going Christians are actually giving 10%. So when you start looking at how we drop the ball in living the Christian life, you start seeing that all these terms non-believers use, like hypocrite and phony, they're exactly right. 
in that context, I have to say, to answer your question, the greatest threat to Christianity in 2018 may not be the rise of secularism or radical Islam or the gay community or Planned Parenthood. The greatest threat to American Christianity today is really American Christians, because we're not living the life God's called us to live. Mm, I'm reminded of the scripture that says that the lukewarm, that God just wants to kind of vomit that out of, you know, that's very very offensive. But you know what? It's much easier for me to point my finger at uh, high-profile Christians who have failed, and I can say the reason there's a decline is because they didn't do that, or he didn't do that, or, you know, there's a political (laughs) answer to that, someone else. When what you're suggesting is that we as individual Christians, as the Christian community, are not living living up to the commitments we profess, and the world is very much aware that we've fallen short, because we don't have the power to muster up the kind of character that we're called to without the Holy Spirit working uh, in in our lives. This is uh, quite an indictment. That's exactly right, and and it's interesting that we have the nerve to get mad at the gay community or Planned Parenthood or other people for living the lifestyle they've chosen to live, when the truth is we're not living the lifestyle we're supposed to or called to live. We, we've In the book, we talk about the fact that we've kind of become the fat guy in the gym that lectures everybody else about health. Um, that's no way to win somebody over. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break. This might be a good time as uh, each one of us sits and ponders for just a moment where we fit in what you've just described. Again, we're talking with Phil uh, Cook. The book is The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. I think lots of us reading the title might be satisfied to think that, again, the point, uh, the finger is going to be pointing outward when, in fact, pointing inward is probably a little more uh, more accurate. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking about the book, The Way Back. It inspires and activates modern believers to relearn from our ancient brothers and sisters and astonish the world once more. It's based on the pioneering ideas used by the early church to transform their culture. I guess obedience plays a role in that. The authors, Phil and Jonathan, lay out innovative ways a contemporary church can rekindle how Christians engage today's society. And they believe that rediscovering these ancient values will be the key that unlocks the ability to lovingly confound and convict an uninterested and hostile culture. One of the things that I especially appreciate about the book is uh, uh, that you make the point that we don't always have to feel uh, a certain passion or calling in order for us to be called to do something. Uh, in the book, you state that sometimes your great calling in life isn't a passion or a dream. Sometimes it's something you hate or something that drives you crazy. Um, does this apply to either of you? I'm thinking about obedience in general and just living the Christian life. It doesn't always have to be be preceded by this feeling that, yes, I have a passion to do this particular thing. That's so true. I had a pastor one time say, sometimes your, minis- your misery is your ministry. Uh, you know, it's not always seeing something good in the world or being a part of something great. It's seeing something we really think is wrong, something we hate. Uh, maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's poverty. Sometimes something that, you know, you hate in life is something that you're called to do. And so sometimes that can be, have the greatest impact there could possibly be. And in many ways, it's why we chose the early church when we were looking at how could we impact the culture today? You know, it's interesting. Politics hasn't really worked. Boycotts hasn't worked. What we call anger strategies hasn't really worked. You don't change somebody's heart because you get mad at them. And we discovered what, you know, we were looking at what does. And we went back 2,000 years, and you mentioned the early church. And what we discovered is they were hunted. They were persecuted. uh, They couldn't pass laws. They couldn't protest anything, but they could act. 
And so there were many areas in life in the Roman Empire, like infanticide. And the, the Romans had no regard for life whatsoever. Kind of sounds like our culture today. But it went so far with the Romans that if a child was born they didn't want, they would take it outside the city, just abandon it. And they called it an infanticide. They would just let it die, let it be abandoned. And the Christians knew this was wrong, but they couldn't pass the law or complain. So they would go out under cover of darkness and take in these abandoned infants, newborns, bring them into their home, raise them as their own. And other members of the Christian community would, would you know, pay, would give them money to help support raising this child. And the Romans had no concept for why anybody would do that. They were so shocked and baffled by this. And there were other areas from the plague, you know, when the plague would hit during the Roman Empire. The Romans couldn't get out of town fast enough, but Christians would go to the heart of the plague to minister to people they didn't even know. And all these kind of acts after a while forced the Romans to rethink who these Christians were and who is this God they served. And historians today will tell us that was a great reason, a a really significant reason, that the Roman Empire finally turned and Christianity became the dominant religious force in the Western world. So it led us to think, what are those things we could do today? We tried boycotts, we tried anger strategies, you know, if you don't say Merry Christmas, we won't buy your coffee. Well, that really hadn't done anything for the gospel. And if boycotts work, why don't missionaries do it? You know, let's go to a third world country, surround tribe, hold up signs, criticize them. That's not going to really win them to Christ. So what are the things we could do? And we we started talking about what are the things we could do as a culture today that would so stun and uh, amaze and baffle this culture that it would force them to rethink who we are and who is this God we serve? And that's the ultimate goal of the book. Yeah. In the way back, you draw our attention to Galatians when Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit. Um, how are we doing in terms of, of uh, bearing that kind of fruit that may, in fact, astonish our culture? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't help when we're criticizing other people. It doesn't help when we get mad at Hollywood or we get mad at the gay community. And the truth is, I totally get it. I totally understand. I mean, everybody listening knows that Christianity is virtually disappearing from our culture. Uh, we're, we're being ridiculed. The culture seems to be getting more hostile. And so I understand why people respond with anger and frustration. But the truth is that doesn't bring anybody into the kingdom. I think Jesus knew that it was the, the fruit of the Spirit that really brings that. That's what drew people to Jesus is what drew people to Paul and Peter. I think when we understand that when we have a heart of service and humility, that piques people's interest. And when we serve, that gets people's attention. And that's ultimately what's going to lead to change. As Christians, um, the hole we've dug ourselves uh, seems uh, overwhelming, almost insurmountable. Is it possible for us uh, to see a a change if we uh, defy the statistics that you quoted earlier about church attendance and Bible reading and praying and essentially living living the basic Christian life as a follower of Jesus in obedience. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Georgine, some people think uh, I have the spiritual gift of discouragement. Uh, but <laughs> but there's, there's actually hope out there. I mean, if the Roman, if, if the early church could turn it around, who was being hardcore persecuted and hunted down and killed, if they could turn it around with all of our resources and influence and financial support, what could we do? So I think it's just a matter of saying, how do we get serious? How do we get committed? One thing we discovered in studying the early church, they were in 100%. You know, today, we I'll give you a great example. When they accepted Christ, let me tell you, it was like signing your death warrant. Because at that time, they knew when they made that decision for Christ, 
it would radically change their future forever. Well, today we've kind of dumbed it down to just accepting Christ, which is sounds like we're kind of signed for a FedEx package or something. You know, we don't understand it's that holy moment of commitment where everything in our life completely changes. And so we've taken this easy way out, and I think we're not going to impact the world until they see just how committed we really are. Now, as I mentioned earlier in your introduction, you are part of the entertainment world. Marketing is a, a part of what you do. What are some of the challenges and, quite frankly, triumphs that you have experienced and encountered with your faith uh, while being in an industry that many uh, in the church consider pretty hostile? You're exactly right. And what's interesting, that's a great that's a great question, because what's interesting is very often I've discovered I've been in high level meetings with studio executives or or movie executives or producers or television executives. And at the end of the meeting, I, 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 I often will say, would you mind if I just prayed for you? Would you mind? And you wouldn't believe it. But almost every case they say, absolutely, we'd love that. And so what we find is there are people out there that certainly don't know anything about Christianity. They weren't raised Christian. They don't really maybe care for Christians. But the truth is, everybody loves to be prayed for. And they, if you reach out to them, it's amazing how many will accept that. So I think, you know, when, when people criticize and boycott the entertainment industry or Hollywood, it doesn't help because there are thousands of dedicated Christians trying to make a real change from the inside in the industry. And I, I just encourage people, stop thinking of Hollywood as the enemy and start thinking of Hollywood as a mission field. Mm. What if we started sending missionaries to Hollywood? What if we started praying for Hollywood? I think God would really honor that and see change happen. Well, I think we may know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it. When people finish reading uh, The Way Back, and I hope they will read it, how Christians blew our credibility and how we get it back, what do you hope they walk away with? What message do you ultimately want us to, uh, to take with us? I want us to go from an idea of anger strategies, from getting mad because things aren't going our way, to start thinking in terms of what could we do today that would so astonish people, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers? Um, how could our church impact our community in such a powerful way that it would force people to rethink, wait a second, these Christians aren't these weirdos or these bad people that I thought about. These guys are remarkable. They're doing amazing things. And it doesn't, it, it's not that difficult to, I read a statistic the other day that said it's staggering the number of people in this country that don't even know their neighbor's name. You know, people talk about wanting to be a missionary. Well, that's great. How about go next door? Let's see what we could do just reaching out to the guy next door, the guy in your office. What could we do to serve them that would make them maybe suddenly rethink who this Christian guy is? And maybe I should give this a try. It would change their perception completely. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is a way to turn the world upside down. Yeah, you're. You know what? It's so simple. It's it's just a, it's it's Christianity 101. It's not a radical new idea. It's something that's been working for two thousand years. But it seems like in the last thirty or forty, largely because change has happened so quickly in our culture, we've just forgotten the idea of service, of humility, of reaching out to change people's lives. If we could do that again, it would be remarkable. Mm, wouldn't it though? The book once again is titled "The Way Back: How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back." It's published by Worthy. My guest, Phil Cook, and his co-author, Jonathan Bach. Thank you so much for the book, and thanks for talking with Thank us today. You. Appreciate it very I much. I had a great time. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good night. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us on this first day of the impeachment trial. 
of citizen Trump. We'll tell you more about that in just a, a few moments. But I do want to mention that Dr. Michael Yusuf of Leading the Way has a new book releasing soon, and I'd love for you to get a copy. It's titled Hope for the Present Crisis, Hope for This Present Crisis. This month, you can pre-order Dr. Yusuf's new book. Uh, the book does not release until the 2nd of March. You can pre-order your copy now, however, and receive a pre-order bonus download. So just go to kpdq.com, look for Hope for the Present Crisis to pre-order your copy today. I mention it now because in the context of all that's going on, this is a book I think you'll find very helpful in sorting it all out and putting it into eternal perspective. Well, as mentioned at the top of the first hour of today's program, former President Donald Trump has been out of office for nearly three weeks, but he's still expected to command the full attention of the legislative branch and the country because the Senate began its second impeachment trial barely one year after his first earlier today. Well, the former president was impeached on the 13th of January, just one week after a pro-Trump mob overtook the Capitalist uh, Congress and former Vice President Mike Pence were certifying the results of President Biden's win in the 2020 election. Well, Democrats in Congress and even some Republicans were outraged that the former president had gathered a rally in Washington on that day where he repeated uh, his claim that he won the presidential election, said he didn't have enough to stop the attack uh, once his supporters began to breach the Capitol about one hour after his rally's conclusion. Well, as the trial begins, uh, president's uh, lawyers are also expected to argue that the Senate can no longer constitutionally convict the former president now that he is out of office. The House impeachment managers uh, earlier in the day uh, disputed that, Um, in an affair that represents the finale of Trump's rather tumultuous first term, even as rumors persist that he may run for a second in 2024. In fact, that really is at the heart of moving forward, not only as the Democrats argued earlier in the day, holding him accountable for actions they believe he is directly responsible for, but depriving him of the opportunity in the future to run for office. Whether or not that can be accomplished, well, we'll have to see. Well, the president has been accused uh, rather accused of incitement of insurrection, the fundamental charge behind the impeachment article. But that assertion is backed up, uh, the Democrats argue, by the impeachment managers with a litany of other charges about what actions from the president incited the insurrection on that day and why. Uh, The sides uh, will have until 9 a.m. Well, I should say it it all started at 1 o'clock p.m. this afternoon, and they were given until um, each side given two hours Uh, to argue their points. Vermont Democrat Senator Patrick Leahy, the chamber's president pro tempore, presided in place of Chief Justice Roberts. Vice President Harris uh, could have potentially presided over the trial for reasons of fairness. Uh, That was not the case. Now, Tuesday, we're going to see four hours of debate. I should say we have seen uh, two on the part of White House impeachment managers, two on the part of Trump counsel. Uh, As I'm recording the program right now, that's taking place. Uh, Both sides will then have until 9 a.m. tomorrow to file any motions and 11 a.m. on Wednesday to file responses to those motions before the arguments on the merits of the impeachment began begin rather at noon on Wednesday. Today, essentially, the issue is whether or not there is constitutional authority and uh, charges that merit moving an impeachment trial forward for a president who is no longer in office. Uh, The Democrats rather skillfully made their legal argument, although it was peppered with significant emotional emotion, I should say, in trying to make the case that, yes, not only should, but this must move forward. The Republican uh, representatives of the president, his legal team, I should say, 
uh, followed with their two hours of making their case. Well, again, in the whole process, President Trump's lawyers are going to present their case. Also, um, each side, the House will present its case first. It will be uh, allowed 16 total hours of argument. This is beginning on Wednesday over the course of two days. Then Trump lawyers will present their case also up to 16 hours over two days. It's sort of deja vu all over again, but not quite. Well, assuming the trial moves forward, because later today, once the Republican, uh, I should say, once the president's legal team make their case, there's going to be a vote on whether or not the um, trial should proceed. It is by no means a given, but that will be um, voted. And then the process I'm describing will take place. Well, it's going to take at least a week, we're being told, and we'll follow the uh, story as it goes. This is certainly a moment in history, the first time a president who is no longer in office has been impeached uh, or is being considered for impeachment at this point. And it certainly has implications moving forward, whether or not that means uh, the strict constructionist interpretation of the Constitution is being applied in this case, as the Democrat uh, impeachment managers argued, or this is some extra constitutional practice that was not allowed for by the framers. So again, an historic moment in interpreting what the Constitution says, allows. And I think it's also important to emphasize that this is a political process as much as a legal one, certainly a lot less legal uh, in terms of the, the process than political, but an important one because it will shape the future of how uh, the misdeeds uh, as accused on one side of the political aisle of a sitting president or civilian president are handled. We'll continue to follow the story. Well, the uh, once shirtless, horned Capitol rioter has now said in a statement, I was wrong. Of course, being caught and held accountable helps with that. Mary Wilson, the co-founder of the Supremes, is dead at 76. And COVID-19 patients with gum disease are nine times more likely to die, according to a study. How's that for changing the subject? Well, Amazon has endorsed a $15 minimum wage bill, despite the uh, Congressional Budget Office projections that 1.4 million jobs could be cut off by 2025. And Wall Street is pretty eager to see when Uber and Lyft expect to return to normalcy following COVID-19. I think we'd all like to know that, although the list of uh, particular businesses might be a bit different and much longer. Well, the Supreme Court has suspended California's ban on indoor religious services in a 6-3 vote. The justices said it violated the First Amendment. Albert Moeller, Dr. Moeller, says if you put all six of the conservatives together, that leads up to the 6-3 vote on behalf of these churches. It is a big win for religious liberty. As a matter of fact, when you look at the chief justice statement that deference is broad, but it has its limits, it's a signal sent not only to the governor of California, but to any state or government authority that they cannot shut down houses of worship indefinitely, even in the midst of a pandemic, especially when, as the decision handed down made clear, the reality is that the state of California was demonstrably treating churches differently than other kinds of groups or organizations or entities, such as businesses. Well, Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, uh, said that was uh, joint, or I should say in his opinion, was which was joined by Justice uh, uh, Thomas and Alito said that what was going on in California is impermissible targeting of religion. Well, Democrats are seeking to push $15 minimum wage in the coronavirus package, but Biden is unlikely to fight for it, opting for a little down the road where it stands a better chance. David Harsony points out a minimum wage hike quenches the populist appetite 
of many voters. After all, it seemingly cost them nothing to compel greedy big business CEOs to pay the proletariat fairer wages. The problem is that a minimum wage is a tax on goods and services, and it's not the big businesses that suffer, but small ones who can't afford it, nor are minimum wage workers a static group of poor Americans. In fact, 58% of them are young workers. Minimum wage policy marginally improves the lives of Americans working their way up the ladder and, in the meantime, destroys millions of entry-level jobs. Even the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, says that while $15 minimum wage would lift 900,000 out of poverty, it would eliminate 1.4 million jobs. Quite a balancing act. The Wall Street Journal points out the idled worker would be disproportionately younger and less educated, and Congressional Budget Office projections that half of them would drop out of the labor force. Prices would also rise for goods and services that rely on entry-level labor, such as food-prepared in restaurants. Uh, The federal government deficit through 2031 would increase $54 billion, the CBO says, as the government spent more on unemployment benefits and health care programs. Well, the Fed is mulling forcing all airline travelers to show negative virus test. In other words, you have to have a vaccine or at least a negative test before you can travel. The Biden administration is in talks with the CDC on whether and how to implement it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're kind of winding our way through some of the day's headlines with one eye poised on the impeachment trial, which, as this program is being recorded, is underway. Also want to mention that a Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise 2021 is available for you. It's coming up in August through September of this year, you can join Alistair Begg and Laura Story on the Deeper Faith Alaska Tour. Sounds like fun. You can dine with new friends, explore beautiful parts of Alaska, enjoy a refreshing experience and teaching from Alistair Begg from Truth for Life, music from Michael O'Brien, and much more. Register today at kpdq.com. Look ahead to the future. There might be a cruise on the horizon for you. An animal rights group is targeting Costco's $5 rotisserie chicken. This, ladies and gentlemen, is where I draw the line. Have you seen those chickens? They're huge. Anyway, the New York Times' Nicholas Kristof helped move the story along as the left now targets the one way even the poor can get affordable cooked chicken. Is there no end? Well, the worst cook, the Food Network program winner, has been charged in the death of a child Ariel Robinson, who is African-American, tweeted about her adopted three-year-old's white privilege, apparently ended the child's life. God help us. President Biden has entered the United States back into the United Nations Human Rights Council. Such a misnomer to call it the United Nations Human Rights Council. In 2018, former President Trump pulled out of this um, bogus organization because of its nefarious track record targeting Israel. Israel had received um, by far the largest number of critical council resolutions against any country. AP uh, noted, adding, in addition to the council's persistent focus on Israel, the Trump administration took issue with the body's membership, which currently includes China, Cuba, Eritrea, Russia, and Venezuela, all of which have been accused of human rights abuses. The chicken's apparently overseeing the chicken coop and hasn't worked out that well. Meanwhile, rapper Kodak Black offers to send FBI agents' uh, kid to college. Uh, rapper, um, uh, The rapper, I should say, has offered to pay the college tuitions for the children of the federal agents murdered by the child pornography suspect in Sunrise. 
Kodiak Black was released from prison by former President Donald Trump in an 11th hour commutation before he left office on the 20th of January. Kodak Black, who's known for having a charitable streak, made the offer in a letter sent to the Federal Bureau of Investigation Miami office. Agent Alphen had a three-year-old child and Agent Schwarzenberger is survived uh, by a four-year-old and nine-year-old children as well. Well, the Trump impeachment trial could conclude within a week under procedural agreements. We'll see if it survives the day first. And uh, the U.S. plans to um, re-engage with the uh, Human Rights Council, as I've already mentioned. Senator uh, Senator Richard Shelby is the fourth Republican to announce he will not seek re-election in 2024. And the Senate has confirmed Dennis McDonough as Secretary of Veterans Affairs, despite some veterans opposing that appointment. A minimum wage increase would kill 1.4 million jobs, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Bears repeating. And Jen Psaki, President Biden's press secretary, says illegal immigrants convicted of crimes will not be prioritized for deportation. Now, in fairness, these are uh, considered nonviolent crimes. Representative Ron White is the first congressman to die after coronavirus diagnosis. And the Biden administration is considering COVID tests for domestic flights. South Dakota legislation is seeking to nullify the president's executive orders, which, if court tested and survives, would have substantial implications. And a North Dakota bill would legally define abortion as first-degree murder. That, too, would have significant ramifications. Well, Chicago has reached a deal with the teachers' union preventing a strike. In-person classes are now finally set to resume. Again, maybe. We'll see. Well, a hacker attempted to poison the water supply in a Florida city near the Super Bowl in Tampa, And we're pretty shocked to learn that the World Health Organization investigators have backed Beijing's claim that COVID did not leak from a Wuhan lab. And they call uh, they're calling rather for no further study into that theory. There apparently is nothing to see here. A Paris court has found France uh, guilty of failing to meet its own Paris Climate Accord commitments. Again, shocked just in time for the U.S. to return to the treaty, contrary to its own self-interest, which, yeah, I mean, we've already met the requirements. That's a whole nother story. Cancel culture. Chase Bank is closing the account of pro-Trump Kofefi Coffee Company. I mean, if you in any way reflect favorability to any aspect of Donald Trump and his administration, you really should not be able to function in the U.S. Tom Brady called is being called a racist on social media for winning the Super Bowl during Black History Month. I'm having trouble following the logic. Maybe you can Email me and explain it. 1964, on this day in history, the Beatles make their first live American television appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show broadcast from New York on CBS. 1825, which was considerably earlier, the House of Representatives elect John Quincy Adams president after no candidate receives a majority of electoral votes. 1861, Jefferson Davis is elected provisional president of the Confederate States of America at a Congress held in Montgomery, Alabama. 1942, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff holds its first formal meeting to coordinate military strategy during World War II. And 1942, daylight saving wartime goes into effect in the United States with clocks moving one hour uh, forward. I think here in uh, 2021, we might still have daylight saving wartime disputes over whether or not that's a good idea. 1964, the G.I. Joe action figure is introduced at the American International Toy Fair in New York. 
Well, the World Health Organization team investigating the origins of the coronavirus pandemic downplayed the possibility that the virus leaked from a lab near Wuhan, China during a news conference uh, today. Instead, coronavirus likely spread from an animal to humans. That's what the World Health Organization food safety and animal disease expert Peter Ben Emberich said. The WHO and China have faced strong criticism from all around the world over their pandemic response as China blocked WHO investigators from entering Wuhan for months. They finally arrived in mid-January of this year. Our initial findings, they say, suggest that the introduction through an intermediary host species is the most likely pathway and one that will require more studies and more specific targeted research. Emberich told reporters. However, the findings suggest that the laboratory incidence hypothesis is extremely unlikely to explain the introduction of the virus to the human population. Therefore, it is not a hypothesis that we advise to suggest further studies into the understanding of the origin of the virus. In other words, it's not likely. Therefore, we're just not even going to consider looking forward in the future. Well, a federal judge has extended the suspension of President Biden's 100-day moratorium on deportation through the end of this month, the 23rd of February. This federal judge in Texas extended the uh, uh, suspension. Uh, U.S. District Court Judge Drew Tipton in the Southern District of Texas uh, says of the White House's deportation moratorium, 14 days, so which the judge says will give parties more time to provide for a more fulsome record to assist the court in adjudicating Texas motion for a preliminary injunction. The judge also cited the irreparable harm that would accrue on um, two Texans uh, if an extension was not granted. Well, the order didn't state, though, that I should say did state, though, that the Biden administration argued that the 100 day pause of removals is necessary to allow them to take account important immigration, foreign policy and humanitarian considerations. Well, the court may ultimately be persuaded by the defendant's argument, but any harm they might incur between now and then doesn't outweigh the potential for irreparable harm to Texas, the judge wrote. Well, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton last month sued the Biden administration for its move to put a 100-day pause on deportations. Also, the Biden administration is ending asylum deals brokered under the previous administration with three Central American countries, just as the number of migrants arriving at the southern border is spiking. The United States has suspended and initiated the process to terminate the asylum uh, cooperation agreement with the governments of El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras as the first concrete steps on the path to greater partnership and collaboration in the region laid out by President Biden. Now, this is a little confusing to me. That was a quote from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, because the coordination under the Trump plan seemed to be working well under the very difficult circumstances that seemed to be emerging once again on our southern border. Well, the agreements with El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras required many migrants who showed up at the U.S.-Mexico border to seek asylum in one of those countries first. Well, the deals with these countries were never formally enacted, and the agreement with Guatemala had been effectively on hold since March due to the coronavirus pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a rather surprising brazen article, The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election, 
Time magazine is chronicling a myriad of pre- and post-election actions taken by a loose coalition of Democratic operatives, grassroots activists, mainstream media, tech companies, and corporate CEOs before and after the 2020 presidential election. Well, according to the article, the effort consisted of a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. Well, in the post-election days, the author refers to this disparate group of players as a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests and coordinated the resistance from CEOs, resulting in an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. Now, this comes as no surprise to those who are paying attention, but for the Time magazine article to actually talk of it openly and in complimentary terms is still a little surprising. Although the words cabal and conspiracy are used to describe the sweeping activities of these groups, collectively referring to as the shadow campaign, the article's author takes pains to note that these efforts weren't aimed at rigged, or rather rigging the election, they were fortifying it. Now, that's a rather interesting way of putting it. Indeed, throughout the article, there is the repeated claim that these efforts were made not with the intention of subverting the election, but rather as part of a heroic grassroots movement intent on salvaging our democracy, which is, of course, a constitutional republic, and preserving the integrity of this and future elections. Again, in glowing terms, the scenario the shadow campaigners were uh, desperate to stop was not a Trump victory. It was an election so calamitous that no result could be discerned at all, a failure of the central act of democratic self-governments that has been a hallmark of America since its founding, the article reads. It is rather breathtaking and fascinating to read all at once. Douglas Andrews, in response uh, to this admission, says this, well, at least they've admitted it. No, not to stuffing the ballot boxes in Philly or Detroit or Milwaukee, but to conspiring and colluding to do everything in their power, including changing the rules to beat Donald Trump. For leftists, desperate times called for desperate measures, and it took every ounce of collusion between Democrats and their fellow travelers in big media, big tech, big ed, big labor, big sport, big pharma, big academia, Wall Street, Hollywood, and a host of others for borderless Joe Biden to beat Donald John Trump and his 74 million, million legit votes. He goes on, hopefully that paragraph uh, won't get uh, banned by free speech Frady Cats. Besides, the title of the incriminating Time magazine article admits as much the secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. Saved it from what? One wonders. Apparently from uh, theft by us deplorables, he writes. Time's Molly Ball says that when Trump challenged the results of the election, corporate America turned on him. In a way, Trump was right, she writes. There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. The pact was formalized in a terse, little-noticed joint statement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and AFL-CIO published on Election Day. Both sides would come to see it as a sort of implicit bargain inspired by the summer's massive, sometimes destructive racial justice protests, exploiting that, in which the focus of labor came together with a focus of capital uh, to keep the, uh, the peace and oppose Trump's, wait for it, assault on democracy. 
Whenever a Republican challenges the results of an election won by a Democrat, it's an assault on democracy. Of course, ours is a constitutional republic, not a democracy, and democracy is little more than mob rule, as founder James Madison rightly noted in Federalist 55. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob, end quote. Well, thus, one man's assault on democracy is another man's defense of the republic against the mob rule, by the left. Well, as James Freeman writes in the Wall Street Journal, changing the rules of a game right before it's played normally inspires skepticism, if not cynicism. But a new Time magazine report celebrates a well-funded effort to change voting processes and the flow of political information before the 2020 elections. Time's Molly Ball happily describes a conspiracy among the progressive left, big labor, big business, and the Washington establishment to counter Donald Trump and suppress unwanted elements of U.S. political conversation before and after Election Day. Like the various actors she describes at the heart of this vast campaign, Ms. Ball presents it as a virtuous effort to protect democracy from Mr. Trump and COVID-19. The participants in the conspiracy alleged by Ms. Ball certainly seem to have influenced the outcome, end quote. Well, longtime conservative thinker and columnist Gary Bauer says that the forces arrayed behind Biden interfered with the election by changing rules and laws, steering the coverage and controlling the information. He writes that big media and big tech manipulated the news and covered up major stories that were embarrassing to Biden and the left. And I was struck by the admission in the article of just how much the street protests we have seen in the past year were coordinated and not spontaneous events. There were plans for major post-election protests, but liberal activists were ordered to stand down. One progressive leader said we wanted to be mindful of when was the right time to call for moving masses of people into the street, end quote. So President Trump was right about what we were up against and still are, even if some of his legal team appeared to have gone off the reservation in terms of allegations of massive electronic vote manipulation by the likes of Dominion and Smartmatic. But given the left's admission that its collusion helped decide the 2020 presidential election, what's next? Well, as uh, Gary Bauer concludes, I am bringing this article to your attention, not to demonize you, but to urge you to remain in the battle for faith, family, and freedom. The left succeeds in part because it never gives up. It is constantly organizing, constantly fundraising, constantly influencing officials, constantly registering new voters, etc., We must be just uh, as committed to our values as those on the left are to theirs. It really is a rather breathtaking uh, admission, and I think it's worth reading because it does um, admit to a lot of what was thought to be the case and apparently was. Well, in local news, Governor Kate Brown today announced that 12 counties improved in risk level, with 10 improving from extreme risk for the first time since November Effective February 12th, county risk levels under the state's public health framework, they aim to reduce transmission and protect Oregonians from COVID-19, of course. Well, the framework uses four different risk levels for counties based on the COVID-19 spread. Extreme risk, high risk, moderate and lower risk, and assigns health and safety measures for each level, what you can and cannot do. Well, effective the 12th of this month through the 25th, there are going to be 14 counties in the extreme risk level. 11 at high risk, 3 at moderate, and 8 at lower risk. A complete list can be found online. Uh, But the governor says um, 
thanks to Oregonians who have stepped up and made smart choices. We've made incredible progress in stopping the spread of COVID-19 and saving lives in Oregon. She says it's also incredibly important that we continue to remain vigilant and protect our neighbors and loved ones as we face virulent new strains of COVID-19. Well, the Oregon Health Authority will examine and publish county data weekly. Uh, County risk levels will be reassigned every two weeks. The first week data will provide a warning week uh, to prepare counties for what happens next. So kudos on that. Meanwhile, restaurants, bars, and gyms in Portland appear poised to reopen to inside activities on Friday. That's according to preliminary state data. Multnomah, Washington, and and, uh, Clackamas counties will appear likely to have fewer than the 200 cases per 100,000 residents over the next two-week period, which would qualify those businesses to welcome customers back indoors. Well, state officials posted preliminary statistics uh, Monday morning suggesting as much. Multnomah County recorded 194.6 cases per 100,000 residents. Washington, 165.6 cases per 100,000. And Clackamas, 185.2 per 100,000. But Governor Kate Brown and the Oregon Health Authority, rather, um, have not certified final numbers, uh, making it impossible to declare with 100% certainty that affected metro businesses will be allowed to reopen. So people are sort of on pins and needles trying to determine what the case ultimately will be. One final thing, um, it's uh, tax season and this year's going to be a little wonky. Uh, we know that you have questions about filing, like um, whether or not these stimulus payments are going to be taxed. The answer to the question in Oregon, they're going to be taxing your stimulus check. We'll talk more about that t- tomorrow, but heads up. Um, long story short, yes, you'll probably owe some extra money to the state um, or get a smaller refund than usual because of the stimulus checks you've already received. We need to take a quick break. You'll be back for some final thoughts. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, it's fascinating to spend the day talking about what's happening in the world, what's happening in Washington or what's happening in Olympia or Salem. Putting it all into perspective is the challenge for each one of us. What do I make of what's happening in the world? Now, I'm hoping that all of us are students of Scripture, and that goes a long way to helping us understand the trajectory of human history the trajectory of human moral decline, our inability to manage our own affairs without divine intervention. And I just wanted to close today's program thinking about that context as I reflect back on the words of Anne Graham Lott, which he originally uh, shared at the time of our election, putting things into perspective. Some of us are thrilled with the outcome of the election. Some of us are convinced that Armageddon is just days away. Others of us are just crying out to God for wisdom. The leaders that God has allowed, the ones that we have chosen as a nation, as a city, as a state, these are the people who will lead us. And we're told in scripture, we need to pray for them, regardless of our feelings about them and their um, particular political views, we're charged with praying for those who are in authority. Now, how we pray for them matters, but we're charged with praying for them and entrusting the future and the decisions they will make, entrusting them to God so that we can be men and women who live peaceable lives as much as is possible and that we can carry out our primary directive, which is to be ambassadors of Christ. Well, this is what she said we ought to do during this season when there's so much divisiveness and uncertainty, as I suppose has always been the case in human history. 
She says this, on this day, we acknowledge that yours is the glory and the power. Now, we're not talking about the president or the governor or the mayor. We're talking about the ultimate authority. There are times in prayer when I seem at a loss for words. This is one of those times with all of the turmoil, confusion, anger, fear, division, and upheaval as we transition with COVID keeping us confined and separated from each other. I know I need to pray, but how? And so I have turned to the familiar prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, putting it into my own words, our Father. You are seated on heaven's throne in glory, majesty, and supreme authority. You are in charge. You don't make mistakes. You have promised that you will be with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You use hard times to get us to look up, so we look up now. We turn to you. Thank you for your promise that when we come to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you will hear our prayer because we are your children. We reverence your name, Yahweh, Yahshua, Jesus. You have declared that at the sound of your name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. You have revealed that your name is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You have been our help in ages past and you are our hope for years to come. You are the God of our founding fathers. You are the God in whom we as a nation have put our trust. We pray that you would exercise your authority, fulfilling your purpose on this earth, in this nation, so that your will is carried out here as it is in heaven, because we know your will is good, perfect, and pleasing to those who live according to it. Your will works. All that is said and done outside of your will is like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, with so many of us in dire financial need, with businesses shuttered and incomes shrinking, please provide for us. Give us what we need each day, food, clothing, rent, housing payments, and other necessities. Protect us from this deadly pestilence. Restore health to those who are sick. Many of us feel deeply hurt by others. In response, we choose to forgive those who have attacked us, slandered us, divided us, betrayed us, belittled us, wounded us, and deceived us. We know that if we don't forgive those who have sinned against us, you will not forgive us our sins against you. So we forgive one another now as we do heal our hearts. We pray you would deliver us from any evil agendas and powers, either foreign or domestic, visible or invisible, that would seek to take advantage of us at this vulnerable moment. Protect us, guard us, defend us. Keep us from giving in to temptation to believe the end justifies the means. To plot a course for this nation that is in opposition to you. To wound those who have wounded us. To seek revenge and retribution. We need you now more than ever. On this day we acknowledge that yours is the glory and the power. You have the final word. You keep the books. You are the judge of both the living and the dead. One day, each of us will stand before you and be held accountable for the way we have lived, what we have said, and what we have done. Help us to live every day in the light of who you are with that day on our minds. This is the challenge for us as followers of Jesus during this divisive time. Yesterday, as I was making my way to a doctor's appointment, I was having a conversation with Dan Rice about someone whose writing on uh, social media is so offensive 
that it's difficult for me to speak his name. This is a leader in the church whose words are so painfully divisive that it's difficult for me to find any redemptive purpose. And yet, as I was reflecting on who that individual is and those over whom he exercises some influence, I was struck by the Holy Spirit to begin to pray for him. I didn't pray against him. I began to pray for him. This is someone who is a follower of Christ. And my heart, because of the Holy Spirit, began to change in how I prayed for him, to have a deep love for my brother with whom I strongly disagree and believe much of what he's saying is destructive and undermining what God is calling us to do as followers of Jesus. And I know that God can do that for each one of us. Are you praying for Joe Biden if you strongly disagree and uh, with him and dislike him? Are you praying for Donald Trump if you strongly disagree with him and strongly dislike him? Are you praying for the mayor of the city, Mayor Wheeler, if you're frustrated by his inability to resolve the issues that our city is facing? What a tremendous opportunity we have as men and women not to flex our muscles, but to demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of humble followers of Jesus who recognize we desperately need your wisdom. So in the context of everything that's going on, will the uh, former president be impeached? I don't know. Is that the right thing to do? I'm not certain. What I am certain of is what my primary calling is, and I'm asking God to change and shape my heart. And I hope you'll do the same. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and I want to thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.